everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. In this episode, we are covering an annual, so it is a little bit on the longer side, so I'm gonna jump into things without too much preamble. But there were a couple of things I wanted to get out of the way right up top. First of all, the recording process for this show is a little bit weird because I record this opening segment on the day that we release the episode, but the conversation that Corey and I have, which follows the synopsis, is recorded about a week and a half before that. I'm just bringing this up because in Corey and my conversation, we talk about the wildfires which were ongoing in our area at the time, and I just want to assure everybody, in the week and a half since we recorded that, the situation here has calmed down quite a bit. We've gotten some rain, and the air is now breathable here, which is really nice. On a less serious and happier note, a few weeks or months or days? Years? An indeterminate amount of pandemic time ago, I recorded an intro where I gave a plug for the show Garden Plots with Skeletor. At the time I recorded that, I had done a little bit of guest writing for the show, but now I am a regular writer on the show, which I mentioned for a couple of reasons. First of all, it gives me the opportunity to bring the show up again and give it a plug, and I really have been loving working on that show, and I'm really proud of the shows that we've been putting out over there. I'm glad that I wasn't a regular writer on the show when I decided to give it a plug last time because I would feel a little bit self-conscious about the amount of praise that I lavished on the show, and I'm glad I got the opportunity to do that while I was still being relatively objective. But the other reason I want to bring that up is that there's now a precedent set where if I praise a thing and give it a plug, maybe I get asked to work on that thing. So I just want to say up front, I am a huge fan of every show on network television. I think they're all the best. And big budget major motion pictures, keep up the great work, guys. Your ace is in my book. There, that ought to do the trick. Now, while I wait for the job offers to roll in, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. The Church of Blood has their sanguine commandments for lymphocytes and hematopoiesis. Like most holy books, theirs is quite long and dense, so the bloody faithful need a synopsis. Thanks, Mark. And an extra thanks for the pronunciation guide. Before we get into the synopsis, I did just want to give a content warning. The second story in the annual that we cover today, The Book of Blood, does contain a fair amount of domestic abuse and also some implied sexual violence. Uh, it's not something that we dwell on particularly in either the synopsis or in the discussion that Corey and I have afterwards, but it is something that comes up. So I just wanted you to be aware of that going into it. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Annual Number 2, August 1986. 
Revenge of the Rusting Reptiles from Outer Space. Written by Marf Wolfman and John Byrne. Drotted by John Byrne. Inked by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Lettered by Bob LaPan. Colored by Adrian Roy. And edited by Mike Gold and Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Starfire. Beast Boy. Nightwing. Cyborg. And featuring Dr. Light. But not that Dr. Light. Or maybe just Wonder Girl. Depending on your perspective. Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, is watching her nine-year-old stepdaughter Jennifer for the night. It's bedtime, but Jennifer isn't sleepy. She tries to negotiate a few extra minutes to play with her robot dinosaur toys, but Donna isn't biting, so Jennifer changes tactics and asks for a bedtime story instead. Donna reluctantly agrees, and her unsleepy charge asks for a tale involving aliens, dinosaurs, and the Teen Titans. Jennifer figures Donna must know the Teen Titans because so many of them attended the wedding of Donna and Jen's father, Terry Long. So, I guess Donna's disguise of not wearing a mask but hoping nobody notices she's Wonder Girl has worked on at least one person, a nine-year-old. I also like that even Jenny knows there's no way the Titans would be there to see Terry. Donna capitulates to her stepkid's demands and begins a story that she says happened a while ago to her good friends, the Titans. An indeterminate amount of comic book slash bedtime story time ago, Dr. Light was flying around California. To be clear, this isn't the creepy, terrible goatee-having douchebag Dr. Light. This is the new Japanese lady Dr. Light who got introduced in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Which is good, because other Dr. Light doesn't belong anywhere near a little kid's bedtime story. Anyway, some scientists named Ben Simmons and Julie Foster were working on an engineering project outside of San Francisco when they found something weird. They called up Dr. Light but not that Dr. Light and asked her to fly over from Japan and take a look at it for them. They didn't bother telling her what it was they wanted her to look at, but to be fair, long-distance calls were a lot more expensive in the 80s, so maybe that's understandable. It turns out that Ben and Julie were digging near the San Andreas Fault to do some earthquake research when they found an unexpected chamber that was filled with an unidentified radiation. Dr. Light, but not that Dr. Light, is a radiation expert or something, so they gave her a call. Fortunately, Light is able to use her powers to disperse the mysterious radiation. Hooray! She's apparently excited enough about that feat that she places a FaceTime call to her casual acquaintances, the Teen Titans, to brag about it before exploring the cavern to see what's inside. While they're on the phone, there's a huge explosion, and the connection gets dropped. The gang piles into their T-Jet and zooms off to the west coast to see what the deal is. Even with a souped-up superplane, it's a two-hour flight, which gives Beast Boy plenty of time to sexually harass Starfire, which seems like a weird thing to include in a bedtime story for a nine-year-old girl, but what the heck do I know? Our heroes have almost reached their destination when, for the second time in recent memory, their plane is attacked by a flying dinosaur. On the one hand, I bet they have dinosaur insurance at this point, but on the other hand, their dinosaur insurance must be through the roof. Also, I bet the insurance company disputes the claims, because the last time, the dinosaur in question was a human-pterodactyl hybrid, and this time, it's a robotic pteranodon, for which you probably need to get a whole different policy. That's how they get you. 
Anyway, Starfire jumps out to fight the Robosaur. Cyborg follows suit, but even the combined attacks of two of the most powerful Titans seem to have little effect on the mechanized menace. At this point, the action starts to get a little confused, but after noticing but not doing anything about the fact that in addition to the Robo-Pteranodon, there's also a Robo-Triceratops marauding the countryside, Starfire gets batted out of the air. After a pretty rough landing, she hears Dr. Light and the scientists calling for help from under some rubble. With Wonder Girl's help, Coriander lifts up a slab of concrete that has fallen over the entrance to their tunnel and frees the researchers from their subterranean interment. Once they are free, Dr. Light, Ben, and Julie ask the Titans to stay outside as they explore further into the tunnel. They soon encounter a large chamber where there are three inert robotic dinosaurs hanging out. I'm actually pretty sure this part was supposed to be a flashback where Light tells the Titans how the dinos got loose in the first place, because despite the fact that we just saw them rampaging around outside, the Pteranodon and the Triceratops are two of the three inert robots we see just chilling out here. But there seems to be some miscommunication between the art and the writing about that, so whatever. Over Dr. Light's objections, Julie touches the Tyrannosaurus. Uh-oh. The T-Rex literally roars to life and claws its way to the surface to gallivant around with its robo-buddies. The recently released robo-reptile must have a script it was hoping to get a development deal for because it makes a beeline for Los Angeles. It pauses there briefly to step on the house of a recently transplanted New Yorker, then, possibly learning about L.A. real estate, the clockwork Cretaceous Calamity continues south. Back at the site of the original encounter, Nightwing notices that when the dinos got loose, they released a beam of light headed into the sky. Oh shit! Are they trying to signal robot dinosaur Batman? If so, the Titans are fucked. Just imagine the size of the penny that would be in that guy's Batcave. Also, would he have a statue of a giant human in there? Unfortunately, before Dick has much of a chance to ponder the possible ramifications of the existence of a Dinobot Batman, the T-Jet's onboard computer informs him that a similar beam of light, which intersected the first, was being beamed from a location in the Pacific Ocean. The acrobatic adventurer figures that's probably worth looking into, so he's like, Hey, Starfire and Cyborg? You know how your attacks had virtually no effect on that one Robotosaur? Well... Go find its two bigger buddies and beat them up too, will you? Everybody else, hop in the plane. Somebody halfway around the globe is using a flashlight, so we're gonna go deal with that. Bye, Dick and Coriander. Wish us luck. And off they go. Dick, Beast Boy, Wonder Girl, and the good Dr. Light track the source of the second mysterious robo-bat signal to Easter Island. Neat. Working in the shadows of the giant stone heads for which the island is famous, the gang splits up and searches for the device that is creating the light beam. After a few minutes, Beast Boy finds that the beam seems to be emanating from within the caldera of a volcano. He yells for the others to join him for some impromptu spelunking. Our hero's exploration leads them to a crashed spaceship, the inhabitants of which are long dead. The extraterrestrial corpses bear an uncanny resemblance to the carvings located on the surface of the island. Huh. While their teammates are exhuming space cadavers, Cyborg and Starfire follow the big metal T-Rex all the way down to Chile, where it proceeds to kick the absolute shit out of them. Bummer. 
Back on Easter Island, Wonder Girl makes an intuitive leap worthy of Evil Knievel's sky cycle and suddenly gets a hunch that the space computer on the alien ship is probably powering the robot dinosaurs, somehow. Okay. Sure. Why not? The amazing Amazonian acts on this inexplicable assumption and immediately assaults the navigation system of the alien vessel, smashing the priceless ancient relic to smithereens. Fortunately, Wonder Girl's assumption proved to be correct. Just as the titanium T-Rex is about to stomp Vic and Starfire into oblivion, the unearthly light in its eyes blinks out and it stops moving. Hooray! Once again, the day is saved by someone mindlessly destroying something they don't understand. A good lesson for us all. Donna tucks Jenny into bed and is like, story over. The sleepy Moppet is like, huh? What the hell is that all about? Donna responds, oh, I thought that was obvious. See, the Easter Island-headed aliens accidentally crash-landed their spaceship on Earth. So they sent a signal up to their alien buddies to send a rescue for them and included video footage of the Earth along with their transmission. Since it was dinosaur times, the footage had a bunch of dinosaurs in it, so the aliens who received the transmission figured that they should send some robot versions of dinosaurs to negotiate with the Earth dinosaurs, only the robot dinosaur spaceship crashed too, and then they were all stuck here. The original group of aliens all withered and died, but at some point the people who lived on Easter Island must have found their corpses and made giant statues out of their heads to honor them. Duh. Jenny's like, but what activated the robot dinosaurs to begin with? And if they were sent to negotiate, why did they go on a rampage as soon as they got inexplicably turned on? Donna's like, because go to bed. That's why. Good night. Once she closes the door to Jenny's room and turns out the light, Donna sees that her creepy ass husband, Terry, has been listening in to hear the story. Damn it, Terry. Eavesdropping is for Teen Titans and Teen Titans only. You don't see any of the Titans infringing on your gimmick. I mean, yes, some of them are dating teenagers, but they are teenagers, so that's different. It's not like they're out there being so grossly incompetent at their jobs that they get fired from a tenured position. So don't you start eavesdropping. Then we get the second story. The Book of Blood. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Jim Baiki. Inkted by Jim Baiki. Lettered by John Costanza colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Jericho, but mostly a whole lot of brother bloods. In a secret room deep within the depths of the Church of Blood, Mother Mayhem calls upon some lower-ranking acolytes to retrieve an ancient grimoire from the church's vault and bring it to her in the... Rectory? I'm not sure exactly what a rectory is, but I think it's some kind of room in a church, and this is one of those, so sure, it's a rectory. Once the book is with her in the probably rectory, Mayhem shoes away the acolytes, unlocks the bindings that seal the heavy tome, and begins reading from the secret history of the strangely sanguinary sect known as the Church of Blood. Once upon a time, in the year 1202, a bunch of asshole crusaders rolled through Zandia and pretty much trashed the place. They burned villages to the ground, pressed recruits into service, kidnapped children, stole all the food to feed their army, and were generally just a bunch of gross jerkholes. 
High atop a hill on the outskirts of Zandia's largest village, which I think is just called Zandia, even though it's established that there are other villages within the country, so maybe this is like a New York, New York thing, only less so, was an old church. A warrior monk guy lived in the church, and before the Crusades came, he was all like, Listen, you guys, the Crusaders are going to come, and those guys fucking suck. So you better get ready, and I guess maybe set some Home Alone-style traps or something? I don't know exactly, but the point is, those guys suck, so get ready. But the villagers were all like, yeah, whatever, I'm sure it'll be fine. I don't think the Crusaders will find us. We're kind of out of the way. But, like I said, the Crusaders did find Zandia, and they did all that shitty stuff I said. Plus a whole bunch of other shitty stuff, too. So the villagers went back to the monk guy and were like, Dang, we totally should have listened to you. And the monk guy was like, Yeah, you think? And the villagers were like, Okay, we get it. But you're super good at fighting and stuff. Do you think you could help us out by killing a shitload of the crusaders and driving the rest off? And the monk guy was like, Fine, whatever. You're lucky I'm so devout and good at fighting. So the monk guy prayed a bunch and then grabbed a giant sword and went and killed the fuck out of a bunch of crusaders and the rest all ran off. Hooray! He spotted a familiar face among the fleeing knights. It was another monk that he was pretty sure had betrayed Zandia by leading the crusaders there. He rolled up on the guy and was like, Hey, fuck you for betraying Zandia. I'm totally gonna murder you. The betrayer guy was like, Oh shit, don't murder me. I would hate that. Tell you what, I have this magic cloth. It was the prayer shawl that Jesus wore to the Last Supper. A bunch of wizards used it to do evil stuff since then. I was going to take it to Jerusalem to bury it there, but if you don't murder me, you can have it. Deal? The monk guy thought for a second and was like, Counteroffer. I take the prayer shawl, and I murder you. How'd that be? Then he stabs the guy in the tummy and takes the shawl. Damn! Then he licks the guy's blood off his sword. Damn! The stabbed guy is like, Fuck you, monk guy. I curse you. You'll get weird powers from the prayer shawl, but your kid's going to murder you. And his kid's gonna murder him. And his kid... Well, you get the idea. The monk guy was like, Eh, shut up. And double-stabbed the dying guy all the way to death. Only this time, before he got the chance to lick any more blood like a gross fucking creep, a snake crawled up and bit him. The monk guy was like, Well, this sucks. Then he died. But twelve minutes later, he came right back to life. Weird. Later that night, the crusaders came back and tried to raid another village in Zandia. From the foothills, the monk guy rode into battle with the magic cloth that, just to be clear, was Jesus Christ's prayer shawl tied around him. He single-handedly murdered the shit out of each and every crusader. Hooray? The villagers were like, holy crap, thanks, monk guy. The monk guy was like, yeah, no problem. Hey, do me a favor, would you? You see all these corpses? Before you burn them, would you mind draining all the blood out of them and bringing it over to my church? I'm going to keep a big pool of it in my catacombs as a warning to any crusaders who think about invading us. The villagers were like, um, sure, sounds reasonable. So you want us to spread the word that we're doing this, right? I mean, that's how warnings generally work. And the monk guy was like, yeah, I can see where you'd think that, but no... This is going to be more of a secret warning. The villagers were like, Okie dokie, whatever you say, monk guy, you're the boss. Giant pool of blood it is. A year later, the monk guy had all of his parishioners gather for a big ceremony. 
He lowered himself into the huge pool of boiling blood that he now kept under his church, and stayed submerged for three days. When that time was up, he strode out of the blood pool and was like, Hey lady, hand me a hat and towel. And by hat, I mean enormous snake skull that I'm going to wear on my head. And by towel, I mean Jesus's prayer shawl, which I'm going to drape over my crotch. There. Now that I'm dressed, here's a deal. My new name is Brother Blood, and you're all going to worship me. Cool? The parishioners were all like, works for us, and started chanting his new name. For the next 40 years, Brother Blood's mystical and political power continued to grow. He was pretty much running Zandia now, and everybody there worshipped him. He had Jesus' prayer shawl fashioned into a garment that he wore like a loose-fitting harness, which was still super blasphemous, but hey, at least he wasn't draping it over his crotch anymore. At one of his rallies, he sensed that there was one guy who wasn't sincere in his worship, so he had the other worshippers excommunicate that guy, which was the euphemism he used for beating him to death. By this time, Brother Blood was nearly 80, but he was still all muscly and young-looking. He had recently married one of his followers, and decided that he wanted to pull a Tony Curtis and have a baby with her. Soon thereafter, a son was born. Twenty years after that, Blood celebrated his hundredth birthday by getting murdered by his power-hungry son. Turned out the kid had inherited his old man's longevity, mystical powers, and habit of licking blood off of stuff, which he demonstrated by joining the Clean Dagger Club after offing his dad. And so it went for the next several centuries. Each brother blood would live to be about a hundred or so, aging very slowly and having magic powers. Then, when they turned a hundred, their son would murder them and take up their mantle. I guess this makes for a monotonous reading for Mother Mayhem, because she flips through a bunch of pages until she gets to 1941. We're on brother blood number six at this point. As I mentioned, the year was 1941. World War II was well underway but Zandia was relatively unscathed. Hitler was like, We should leave Zandia alone. Brother Blood is too powerful. We'll just let him do his evil thing, and we'll do our evil thing. Also, I just pooped in my pants like a baby. I'm Hitler, and I'm a stupid idiot who fucking sucks. He doesn't actually say that last part, but it's implied. A 19-year-old girl named Anna Rezik took to the streets of Zandia. She had run away from her abusive parents and wasn't sure where to turn. She ran into an acolyte of the Church of Blood, who in turn took her to an audience with Brother Blood number six. Blood was attracted to the frightened girl and showed her special favor. Within a few months they were married, and Anna was pregnant with Blood's child. When the kid was born, Blood had it brought to him. He held his infant son and was like, Well, you're probably going to murder me when you grow up. I'm not crazy about that idea, and I should probably just kill you now, but nah, I'm busy. The son of blood grew into a weird, creepy kid who was totally devoted to his mother. He had a Dracula-style widow's peak and was always sneaking around his dad's palace. He was like, You know, Mom, seems like Dad kind of sucks. He's always murdering people and keeps having sex with other ladies and doesn't even try to hide it from you. Seems like he's an evil jerk. Anna told her son, Nah, he's pretty great, and I think he's sort of a god or something, so we should be nice to him. The boy was unconvinced. One night, the child was awoken by the sound of chanting. He followed the sound to his dad's underground chamber, you know, the one with all the boiling blood. 
Turned out it was his pop's hundredth birthday, and as a special present to himself, the perfidious pontiff had treated himself to a three-day bloodbath from which he was just now emerging. And as frosting on this unsettlingly gory cake, he ordered several of his lady followers to drown themselves in the pool so that he might absorb their life force. They obeyed without a second thought. Or a first one, for that matter. Once he had hoovered up all of their life essences, Blood addressed his remaining followers and was like, I don't know if you guys knew this, but all the men in my family die when they're a hundred years old. Well, not this guy. I feel terrific. Matter of fact, you know what I'm going to do to celebrate? I'm going to murder my son and his mother. Go get him for me. When the creepy kid heard that, he was understandably freaked out. He ran from the room and grabbed his mom. Together, they managed to escape the country on a cargo plane. For the next several years, mother and son traveled around the world and lived in style as the guests of a succession of world leaders who Anna had first met as Brother Blood's wife. During her travel, she grew more famous and, for some unspecified reason, more wealthy. Good for her. But as Anna thrived, her son did not. Early adolescence was unkind to the scion of Zandia. He was petulant and quick to anger in a way that alienated his peers. Also, he was still just generally creepy. On her son's 14th birthday, Anna Resic remarried. Her groom was Yakim Soda, the leader of the lazily named fictional Middle Eastern country of Karak. Oh good, the 1980s comic book version of the Middle East. Well, this shouldn't be horrifically racist and reductive. Immediately after their wedding, Yakim becomes abusive, informs Anna that she is only one of his many wives, and threatens to behead her. He also orders that some of his prisoners have their hands cut off with scimitars, because of course he does. The Son of Blood is pretty upset about all this. Doesn't help that his new stepbrothers taunt him and tell him that their dad is probably going to kill him and his mom soon. After enduring a particularly cruel round of verbal abuse, the kid flips the fuck out and beats the shit out of his tormentors. Then he scoops up a fingerful of their blood and licks it. Gross. After this incident, Anna sends her son off to boarding school in England. As they wait for the boat, the son tells his mother that he's worried her husband is going to kill her. Anna responds, Nah, he's a good guy, and I love him. Her son is unconvinced. As he stands on the deck of the ship, he swears to himself that he will avenge his mother's inevitable murder. While he's looking out at the ocean, a bedraggled old stowaway sneaks up behind him and tries to kill him. The old guy is like, You're the son of Brother Blood, and you're going to grow up and be evil, just like him! The young man is enraged by this assault and launches himself at his attacker, throwing him overboard to his death, shouting as he does so, I am nothing like my dad! I am a super nice guy! Now die, old man! That'll tell him. Brother Blood's son, who is definitely nothing like him and was a super nice guy, excelled in his studies. After high school, he attended Oxbridge University, where he majored in psychology and history. He boxed and played cricket and started a quasi-religious student organization called the Youngblood Society, where presumably everyone sat around and speculated about what Rob Liefeld comic books were going to look like someday. Despite his successes, the young man's angry temperament persisted, and his brooding continued unabated. Early one morning, he finally received the phone call he had long been dreading. It was his mother, Anna. Her husband had beaten her so badly that she was dying from internal bleeding and he would not allow her to see a doctor. 
She begged her son to come rescue her. After pausing briefly to hit and yell at the woman who had shared his bed the previous night, the hypocritical young Zandian hopped on the next plane to Karak. But by the time he arrived, it was too late. His mother died in his arms. Although it was contrary to her dying wish, the grieving son vowed revenge upon his mother's killer. Later that night, he made good on that promise. He broke into Yakim's palace just as the hideous racial caricature was about to assault another woman, and stabbed his stepfather to death. The palace guards rushed in and shot him, but the son of blood had inherited more from his father than an irascible disposition and a literal taste for blood, and the gunshot wounds healed quickly. He fled Karak and surreptitiously made his way back to Zandia to fulfill his destiny. When he arrived at the church, he found that it was once again his dad's birthday. After a hundred and ten or so years, the cult leader was finally starting to show his age, but he hoped to remedy that by taking his annual three-day-long soak in a pool of boiling blood. The elder blood had disrobed and started to wade into the blood pool when his naked son leapt from the balcony and dove at his startled sire. The two struggled, and at first it seemed that the father had the upper hand, but after being thrown through a nearby stalactite, the son grabbed the jagged tip of the broken geologic formation and impaled his father on it, thus fulfilling yet another cycle of the long-dead monk's curse. The son marinated in the scalding blood for the traditional three days, then finally emerged and was greeted by a throng of his now-deceased father's former followers. He gestured toward a beautiful young acolyte and asked her to approach and bring him his dad's old snake skull hat and the weird little harness thing made out of Jesus Christ's freaking prayer shawl, because that's still a thing. After donning these garments, he asked the lady what her name was. When she replied that it was May Bennett, he was like, Nope! Trick question! Your name is now Mother Mayhem, and my new name is Brother Blood. So on the 41st page of a 42-page story, I finally have a name that I can refer to the protagonist as. Hooray! With Mother Mayhem at his side, the new Brother Blood rose to power and did all the shit we saw him do in the pages of New Teen Titans and some other evil shit besides that. The end. Almost. Mother Mayhem closes the ancient tome and turns to address the audience that she has been reading aloud to. Why... It's the Teen Titans! They're like, uh, okay, so thanks for telling us that story, but what was the point of all that? Mayhem smiles and is like, I just wanted to let you know that if you had any plans on killing Brother Blood, you needn't bother. See, I'm pregnant with this baby, and when that kid grows up, he'll take care of that for you. It's tradition. The Titans are like, oh. Okay. Good to know, but by our math, the current brother blood is in his, like, mid-forties right now, and we really don't think we ought to let him keep running around and kidnapping and brainwashing us for another 55 years, so if it's all the same to you, we'll probably go ahead and try to thwart him anyway before then. Uh, thanks, though. We'll just let ourselves out. The end. For real this time. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey. Um, things are weird. <laughs> yeah. So strange. I'd say that's a bit of an understatement. 
We both live in Portland and are, as such, surrounded by wildfires. And it's smoky and the sky is the wrong color right now. Mm -hmm. It's unsettling to have a visual manifestation that is unavoidable of the current state of the world. Yep. So there's that. There is also the fact that the AQI, or Air Quality Index, in this city, the Air Quality Index is a scale that runs from 0 to 500, which measures the air quality. Anything above 150 is unhealthy. Anything above 200 is very unhealthy. Anything above 300 is hazardous. And today, Portland is averaging, I think, 470. Which is an improvement. Yes, because yesterday it spiked at 520. And yeah, as I said, the scale goes up to 500. So, yeah. Yeah, they forgot to add a Ragnarok setting on there. Apparently. So I bring this up for a few reasons. First of all, it's very much on my mind right now. Also, I do have the air filter going just outside the room, and that might be making some noise, but it's kind of non-negotiable right now. B, my throat is maybe a little bit scratchy. And third, apparently the air quality right now is the equivalent of smoking 27 cigarettes. And I only smoke when I drink. So I have myself a Manhattan the size of the Holland Tunnel and a pint of beer in front of me right now. So we'll see what effect that has on covering a 64-page comic book with no page numbers. Oh, we'll be fine, Hub. I don't have any hard alcohol. I just have a collection of Northwest IPAs, so we should be fine. I'll, I'll hold it down. Don't worry. Don't worry. I appreciate that, Corey. Thank you. Well, you ready to get started? No time like the present. I clinked my two drinks together. <laughs> I just, I copied you. I did that too. Nice. That's four cheers. What good luck we'll have. So, Corey, what did you think of this giant comic book? There sure was a lot of timestamps. There definitely were. Let's start with the first story. So the comic book is broken down into two stories. The first one is... Maybe you'll disagree with me here, but I'm going to say the more fun of the two stories. And it's called Revenge of the Rusting Reptiles from Outer Space. What did you think of that story? Yeah, I agree with you on the fun part. There's 100% less blood drinking. <laughs> and blood licking, for that matter. Yeah, what the... that's a... Ugh. But we'll get to that in a little bit. What there was in this story is Dinobots. Mm-hmm. What was your familiarity with the Dinobots? Because I'm pretty sure the toy dinosaur robots that Jennifer is playing with, as Donna tells her the bedtime story, are in fact supposed to be Dinobots. And it gave me a blast of nostalgia because I remember those toys so very well from my youth. Oh, that is curious, because I also had a blast of nostalgia, but for toys that I think were branded differently, which were called Zoids. Oh, I'm not familiar with Zoids. Yeah, they were 
I think originally a, a Japanese toy, but they got released in the U.S. in the like early '80s, '82 maybe, and they were like a robotic dinosaurs. Oh, well, it, honestly, it could be either one of those. For me, just because of when they came out and how old I was, I just assumed it was Dinobots, which were of like I think the second generation of Transformers that we got here in the U.S. They were a toy that I coveted so hard because I loved Transformers, but we didn't really have a ton of money. So I had a Transformer. It was, I believe, not Starscream, but Sunscreamer, something like that. Is that the jet? No, he turned it. He was an Autobot who turned into a yellow Lamborghini. Ooh. Yeah, he was pretty cool. But then from watching the cartoon and then like reading about him and stuff, it turns out he's a real asshole. Oh, man. But that was my one. So, yeah, when there were Dinobots, I was like, oh, shit, I could have had a dinosaur and robot in one. Oh, man. Yeah, whoever came up with that toy concept, that was that was a good move. Yeah, pretty clever. Did you have any Zoids? I did. Yeah, I had a collection of Zoids. Wow. What ones? I don't really remember their names, but I remember there was one that was like a Stegosaurus that had all the things on its back. Ooh. And um, one that was like a T-Rex. That was like the toughest one. And that's about as far as my memory goes. But they were cool. They were like black and silver and very, you know, biomechanical. Cool. The other kind of blast from the past that this story brought to mind. I mean, as you mentioned, there are a number of timestamps within this story. But... One of the bigger, I think, kind of meta timestamps for me, at least, is that this issue was penciled by John Byrne. Do you have any particular thoughts or associations with John Byrne as an artist? Um, no, not really. I mean, I did read the letters column where Wolfman talks a little bit about finding various artists, but I didn't from my, my knowledge of uh, comics that I've read. Hmm. John Byrne was one of those guys that Honestly, I kind of missed the boat on just in terms of my age and when I started reading comic books. Around the time when this came out, he was like the hot shit artist. There were a couple, but like he was one of those guys who could kind of write his own check and was a superstar artist of his generation. Probably his best known work was on uh, the X-Men. He was one of Claremont's artists for some of the foundational issues of that series. And then he went on to pretty much do whatever he wanted to do at Marvel, which was take over the Fantastic Four, and he did a bunch of stuff. He had a She-Hulk series and stuff. But DC hired him when they revamped their Superman comics after the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and he was just a really, really big deal. I, like I said, kind of missed the boat on him in terms of age, so when I see his stuff... It doesn't have the same impact that I think it did for readers who were reading it as it came out. For me, I've seen the artists that I think it inspired that he kind of opened the door for because his style to me seems very similar to guys like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, who were like mega popular when I was super into comics at first. And so it's kind of like when I read Camus, I was like, I don't see what the big deal is. I've read a ton of stuff like this that's built on existentialism, I can recognize it as being good, but it doesn't have the same impact. It's kind of the same thing for John Byrne with me. And when I look at artists of his generation, 
or a little bit older than him, I like a lot of their stuff better. And so, like, I always end up defining him almost in negatives. Like, yeah, he's a little like George Perez, but doesn't have quite the same eye for detail. He's a little bit like Neil Adams, but not quite as dynamic. He does some experimental, like, stylized stuff, but not to the same degree as Howard Chaikin and Walt Simonson, which I don't think is totally fair to John Byrne. But in my defense, he's also an asshole. So, eh. Wow. Yeah, I really liked the art, and in particular, the way that perspective was played with in a lot of the panels and the layouts. Also, you know, Starfire's hair is always a cool thing for the artist to have some fun with, and he did a great job making her hair illustrate the kind of dynamic flight paths that she was taking when fighting with the robot bird and everything. I agree. I honestly think the art in this issue is beautiful, and I think he did a great job with it. It's maybe my favorite John Byrne art that I remember seeing, and I think some of that at least owes to the fact that the inks are by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who I think is an extraordinary artist. And for all of the damning with faint praise that I just did of John Byrne, and damning with damning, (laughs) I do think he is at worst, a very good artist. It's just, I never saw the appeal to his work as, like, superstar level. But I think he does a very, very good job with this, and especially with the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez inks, it's a beautifully drawn story. Yeah, it is. Um, Can you enlighten me? Is the Japanese female Dr. Light an actual character, or is is this Donna making stuff up in the story that she's telling? Terry's kid. No, this version of Dr. Light is an actual character. She first showed up in the Crisis on Infinite Earth stuff. So she's a character that Marv Wolfman created fairly recently when this story first started. But she is a real DC character. I honestly kind of would have liked it better if they had played a little bit more with the unreliable narrator and had her be a complete invention. But uh, no, she is a real DC character. Okay. Yeah, I didn't remember that or didn't know that. And so when they're all like hanging out at Titan's Tower in front of the communication center and Donna says, Dr. Light's calling from California. I was like, oh God, what is happening? (laughs) How is this a children's nighttime story? Like, this is not going to go well. Honestly, there were at least a few touches in this that I was genuinely like, how is this a child's bedtime story? Specifically, the degree of creepiness that Beast Boy evinces. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, he's very much in full Beast Boy mode. I guess maybe the one nod to the fact that this is a story Donna is telling is that Starfire, I think, plays along with it more in this than we normally see in a regular Teen Titans comic, I feel like. She even tells Gar he's cute when he's being a creep. Yeah, so I wonder if maybe as Don is telling the story, she's just like, ah, here's how Beast Boy acts. He'd say something like this. And then maybe she looked over and saw the look on Jennifer's face and was just like, oh, we just joke around like this. It's fine. Which is not a great message to be sharing with Jennifer, but I can also understand the impulse to downplay the inappropriateness of his behavior. Mm. I agree. But yeah, he's a real fucking creepo. You mentioned Dr. Light, and as I had said, she was a character who was introduced 
in the Crisis on Infinite Earths series. And this story apparently is the last Teen Titans story that takes place in the pre-Crisis on Infinite Earths DC universe. So there are a couple of levels of it being okay that it doesn't quite make sense. I mean, first of all, you do have the Donna's probably just making it up as a bedtime story aspect of it. And then you also have, in addition to that, the telling of the bedtime story apparently takes place in a universe that doesn't exist anymore, which Hmm. I'm kind of glad we have, because otherwise there's a lot in the story that just doesn't really add up. Yeah, my synopsis of it is just a few words, which was aliens make robot dinosaurs crash. Wonder Girl kicks a computer. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I probably went into a little bit more detail than that in the synopsis that I haven't written yet for this issue, but maybe I'll just crib yours. No, I I think filling in the blanks would be helpful to uh, people that might not somehow remember everything from this. Honestly, there is a borderline Bob Haney level of wackiness and things not quite adding up in this story that, I gotta be honest, I kind of needed. Mm Mm-hmm. It really got driven home when there's the second alien crash site that they're able to triangulate that is where the aliens crashed on Easter Island, and then the Easter Island heads are models of their actual heads. Yeah. At first, when I saw that, I thought, oh, like, here's that thing again that we often see where it's like, well, you know, white people didn't do it, so it had to be aliens. But that's not what they said. They were said that the folks that were living there, I guess, sculpted those heads in effigy for the aliens that had landed there. Did I get that right? I think that's the general idea. Yeah, so it is still a remarkable engineering feat that the natives of Easter Island were able to do by themselves. So, yeah, I agree. I was kind of looking out for that erasure of the engineering feats of non-whites that you see so much on like history channel documentaries of did aliens do that Mm -hmm. but you don't get that but what the aliens did do is send a distress beacon to their home world and so the aliens there built robot replicas of dinosaurs that they got from the images that the crashed aliens beamed them because I guess they were sending angry robots to negotiate with the Earth natives or something? Yeah, that's unclear. So they say that they did that because the dinosaurs were what they perceived to be the dominant species on the planet at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, essentially these giant mechanical dinosaurs just go full-on straight like destroy mode the second they're woken up so was that did they just send them there to kill all the other dinosaurs maybe maybe that's what happened to the dinosaurs (laughs) yeah meteor my ass i think i saw that on a history channel so. (laughs) so that part was honestly vague and completely bonkers and unnecessary in a way that really did take me back to those Bob Haney stories, and I thought was actually pretty fun. There was another detail, though, 
that really seemed more than that kind of intentional, almost Silver Age wackiness, seemed to be a miscue between the artist and the writer. And that is when Dr. Light goes into the room and finds the three dinosaurs hanging out there. I think that scene was supposed to be a flashback. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? I do. So everybody had been outside fighting the giant pterodactyl and not mm-hmm. doing a great job of it, frankly. They're clearly outmatched by this pterodactyl. Donna and Starfire then free Dr. Light and the buried workers. Just one quick note on that scene when 1D and um, Starfire lift open the thing and free everybody. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of this um, black men don't get shirts thing. Doesn't apply just to heroes, but also to just, you know, incidental characters like this guy who's trapped in there with them. Yep. The costumes on those guys I was going to bring up during sartorially speaking. But yes, the one black character doesn't get a shirt. The white dude gets a full jumpsuit and the woman gets a skimpy tank top and short shorts and a hard hat. It's a good look. Yeah. (laughs) Not really practical, they're safe or unsexist, but she pulls it off. But when Donna and Starfire free Dr. Light, we get another scene back to like the Princess Bride type thing where Peter Falk is telling the story to Fred Savage, where Jennifer's just like, wait, is that really what happened? How did they do this or whatever? And then we see Dr. Light going and discovering the three dinosaurs. And you see that the pterodactyl is still there. Mm-hmm. And I think this scene is supposed to be well, Dr. Light told me that this was what had happened earlier, and this is how the dinosaurs got free. But it's presented as, Dr. Light told the Titans to wait outside, so we weren't there when this happened, which doesn't make any sense narratively. And like I said, you see that the pterodactyl is still there, and it hadn't been freed yet and wouldn't have been on a rampage. So that part doesn't add up. And there are a couple of other just moments like that in the issue where it's like, oh, I think this is what the artist had intended. And then you were forced to reinterpret it. And I think you missed a couple of details. Yeah. And it's unfortunately this kind of a real missed opportunity because there is this interesting thing in that panel going on where they take the dialogue from Donna and Jenny and superimpose it over Dr. Light and somebody talking off panel, which I thought was a pretty cool technique. Yeah, no, I agree it was. Normally, we kind of have to speculate on the creative process that may have led to miscommunications like this, but in the letters column to this, it actually spells out how this comic was put together, which is nice to know. Basically, Marv Wolfman sent six different one-paragraph synopses of storylines to John Byrne and said, you feel like drawing any of these? He picked one of them out, which was this story, and drew a whole comic story of it, and then Wolfman went back and filled in the dialogue. So it ends up being kind of a game of telephone between the two of them, and some of the details don't quite add up. I think normally in a situation like this, there would be a little bit more communication between the two of them, but as is also brought up in this comic, this particular story was kind of thrown together at the last minute. The rest of the book was put together over the course of two years, apparently, the Brother Blood story. And 
had a few different places where it was maybe initially going to be published before it ended up in this annual. But both Byrne and Wolfman were incredibly busy at this point, and also Wolfman was in the course of moving, which we do get a nice little nod to in this issue. And so I think they maybe weren't in as close communication as would be ideal. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if that was supposed to be Marv Wolfman or Randy Newman. (laughs) It is supposed to be Marv Wolfman, but I can totally understand where you would get Randy Newman from that. Same shirt, same hairstyle, same glasses, doesn't like New York, does like L.A. It's, I don't know. Well, okay, the song I Love L.A. is not a unironic love letter to the city. I'm just saying, the way it's portrayed... One could get confused. That's one of those, like, born in the USA that it's just like, I can't believe the Tourism Bureau of L.A. wants to promote that song. <laughs> nobody nobody will notice. But yeah, I thought that that Marv Wolfman scene was actually really, really fun. And it was one of a couple of tiny touches in this where I really did appreciate the humor. And Marv Wolfman's humor isn't necessarily a thing that always works for me, but in a couple of instances in this book, it really did. And one of those was specifically the thing that he was most excited about about moving to LA was that you could make rights on reds. Yeah. I was like, I get that, man. That's funny. I I learned to drive out here, so I just take that for granted, I guess. Yeah. It's easy to do, and it's easy to get used to. And it's been a very long time since I've driven any place where that wasn't legal. But I could see it leading to some issues, and I can also see it being like a breath of fresh air when you finally could. So Mm. kudos to that, Wolfman. Another little joke that I liked in this was when they bust into an underground bunker and Beast Boy actually had a funny joke where he said, well, it's not the Scar Terrace McDonald's, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Scar Terrace? I had to look it up and uh, remind myself, but after I did that, I, I, I appreciated his joke. Yeah, it's the underground world where Warlord takes place, uh, which is in itself a kind of ripoff of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidar, where Tarzan hung out from time to time, but also I think a whole series of books took place there. But uh, I thought that was a nice moment and also pretty close to being a timestamp because this was a time when you did see various McDonald's start to open around the globe, too. Mm. But probably not within the globe. Gotcha. uh, I see what you did there. Another thing that was a little bit weird, we got three dinosaurs headed in different directions. So there are six of us. Maybe seven if Dr. Light's hanging out with them. Cyborg and Starfire, you stay here and deal with all three dinosaurs. The rest of us are going to Easter Island to look for a clue. Yeah. That is a bizarre division of labor. Especially considering that despite their best efforts, both Borgie and Starfire have not fared very well in their their fight with the dinosaurs. No, specifically, they concentrated on one dinosaur and were unable to do anything to stop it and were about to get killed before the other Titans managed to turn it off. It's a good thing that uh, alien technology from whatever era built that device, that everything is controlled by the monitor. Yep. (laughs) Donna's like, the only thing I know about electronics is how to switch on a light and then she kicks the monitor and fortunately that that pauses the uh 
giant dinosaur foot in mid crushing of uh starfire and cyborg yeah and she just has an intuitive level of mechanics in a way that i can only marvel at you know i can see that i i remember with like uh you probably had that experience as a kid like with the crt television like you'd smack it on the side just so to get it to work yeah, you try giving anything the Fonzie treatment. It was the only school of mechanical repair that I ascribed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she Fonzies the heck out of that computer. <laughs> she Fonzies it to bits. I also liked that she tried to convince Terry that what happened was, in fact, real, when I'm pretty sure we are not supposed to be getting that impression. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice little moment, and I also like the idea of uh, Terry trying to transcribe that and write it up as a history paper. Dude, you know he's going to do that. (laughs) I wonder what he's doing now. Is this before or after? I mean, I know this reality doesn't exist anymore, but is this before or after he got kicked out for having two years of writer's block? It's a little bit unclear. See, I think this is supposed to be before, but I also know that the second story is allegedly taking place between issues 27 and 28, which we just covered, which also doesn't make any sense. Mm. So, honestly, it's anybody's guess, but uh, I like to think that this happened before he lost his tenure, and maybe part of why he lost his tenure was that he was just like, uh, yeah, so here's an interesting history lesson that people seem to have forgotten about. Did you know those Easter Island heads are actually alien effigies? <laughs> oh, Terry, you oh. dumb, stupid piece of shit. Well, I can always find work at the History Channel. So, now on to uh, some darker material. Yes, let's. What did you think of Book of Blood? I cry at the churning within me, and I know now the time has come to talk about this story. I know you're quoting the book, but damn, it sounds like those are Rush lyrics. (laughs) I think probably Getty Lee had some influence here. Okay, well, the lyrics were by Neil Peart. Did Neil Peart write all the Rush lyrics? I'm pretty sure. Oh, really? I bet people say shit like that all the time, and I bet it bugs the hell out of him. Probably. Well, not anymore. Oh, that's right. So, like a good Rush song, this was a very dramatic story. Had a lot going on. There was actually a lot in this that I liked. In its own way, it was as bizarre as the first story, I'm going to say. But definitely a lot darker. Mm -hmm. And... I'm kind of glad that the stories were paired the way that they do. I think this story on its own might have been a bit much, but having them play off of each other, I think, was probably a smart move. Yeah. The first thing that I was very much struck by in this issue is a personal thing that I have that I had to look up and do research on, but Zandia is a fucking island. And Wolfman keeps fucking forgetting that, and it drives me crazy every time. Like, in this story, there is no way that the Zandia depicted here is an island. It is not 
Tron is an island. You don't pass through an island on your way someplace else, especially during Crusader times. But nope, everybody's just tromping through this island on their way someplace else willy-nilly in this issue, and it drives me fucking crazy. I actually had to go look up the first appearance of Zandia back in one of the earlier New Teen Titans issues and confirm that Zandia is a island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Hmm, okay. Well, I guess the the crusade boat wasn't just going to sail around it. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, it was nice to see the Crusaders depicted as a bunch of fucking assholes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Nice little change from the Black Knight era. Was that Black Knight era? I can't remember when we were talking about the Crusades and some of the earlier stuff where they were depicted kind of not bad. Yeah, that was, the I think, Defenders number four, where Black Knight decided to stay in the past because he wanted to fight in the Crusades because they were so chill. This is definitely not that. The Crusaders are depicted as a bunch of murdering assholes. They are definitely viewed as the bad guys. I will say, other than that, the other depictions of the Middle East in this issue, not so good. Oh, it's so bad. (laughs) It's so bad. Yeah. I had to actually go, like, I've been out of school for forever, but I went to go, like, to make sure I was using it right, look up the the term Orientalism, (laughs) which is the exaggeration of difference or presumption of Western superiority and the uh, application of cliched analytical models for perceiving the Oriental world. And you felt that that applied to this issue in some way? Weird. In that it is the pivotal source for inaccurate cultural representations from the foundations of Western thought and perception of the Eastern world, specifically the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd say that fits. <laughs> I would say so, too. Yeah, that shit was pretty fucking rough. Honestly, there was a lot in this issue that was pretty rough. It would be nice if there was a female character in this story who did not exist primarily as a victim of violence, both sexual and otherwise. That wasn't great. It'd be great if people would just stop licking the blood off things for no goddamn reason. (laughs) That was so goddamn creepy. Like, I guess it's a genetic trait? that all these dudes just love licking blood off stuff. A lot of the use of blood in this issue is just, wait, what? Like the fact that the OG brother blood guy, who is very much a Vlad the Impaler type guy, the fact that he's like, all right, my followers, we just killed all of these invaders. Now drain their blood and put it in a pool under my house where we'll keep it a total secret and won't tell anybody about it so it can be a warning to anyone approaching. I know, and everybody's like, oh yeah, that sounds totally reasonable. Let's do that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he said, yeah, drain their blood. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, this character is is great in terms of being like a, a bad guy character. And uh, he's drawn real creepy i was trying to figure out who he reminded me of like the way that his face is drawn and at first i was like oh it's like steven seagal and i was like no not quite and i was like oh it's like a younger craig t nelson i was like no not quite but i think it's a real fusion of the 
too. We got a Craig T. Nelson Seagal. Craig T. Seagal. Situation here. I think that's a pretty good description. He is, yeah, as I said, he's, his character and I think appearance is supposed to be very reminiscent of Dracula. And specifically the Vlad the Impaler origin of Dracula, where he is a vicious, bloodthirsty man who is defending his homeland. Literally. <laughs> yes, and then is corrupted by evil. The evil of Jesus' prayer shawl. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, so I had it a little bit wrong. In the previous issue, when I teased this for you, I told you that he had paper mache the prayer shawl into the snake hat, and it's worse than that. Because the snake hat is separate, but he instead, after bathing in a lake of blood of his enemies, wears Jesus's prayer shawl as some peekaboo crotch curtains like Trigon wears. It is the sort of thing that I am a third generation atheist, and I found that degree of sacrilege unsettling. <laughs> uh, that I didn't even put that together. It's like, oh yeah, she's just handing him one of those weird thong things but nope that's that's the prayer shawl yeah she specifically says as he is emerging from the pool of blood for the first time oh yeah you're right it's been rewoven he says into a fucking peekaboo crotch curtain oh <laughs> that is that is man also all his hair his hair falls out after his three-day blood spa experience I mean, he may have shaved it off before getting in the bloodbath. I think I probably would, just because even with current technology, it's tough to get that much gunk out of long hair. And so mm. I think like three days lying in a pool of blood, you're like, oh man, just for shampoo costs, I should probably cut this off before that. I don't know if he's that practical. What are you talking about, Corey? <laughs> He well, seems like the most practical man in the world. Yeah, this story is bonkers. It is. It is dark bonkers, but it is bonkers. It also, I'm going to reference the letters column, which has no letters in it. It is just Wolfman describing the contents of this issue. But in it, he says that he knew this was going to be Brother Blood's origin from the beginning. Maybe not all the details of it, but. Enough that he knew that as he was writing stories, he wouldn't contradict himself. Oh, really? <laughs> I was wondering what, what you might be able to pick out from, from that. But yeah, I took note of that also. The fact that this is seven 100-year-old guys is absolutely not the story that we have been presented with beforehand. Also, the degree of secrecy of his origin from his parishioners, seems to vacillate so wildly, not even throughout his depiction, but within this single issue. It also doesn't make any sense that I guess the brain could rejuvenate himself in this pool of blood. Did he also wear Jesus's prayer shawl as a peekaboo crotch curtain at some point that I'm not familiar with? Uh, is he part brother blood? No, can't be, because he didn't get murdered by his own son. There's so much that doesn't quite add up with the past depictions of blood. That being said, I think it's an excellent Buildings Roman. It, it does set up this character very 
very interestingly. Mm-hmm. Even Hitler is scared of Brother Blood. Oh, <laughs> that's, God. that's how tough he is. Yeah, Hitler would normally send his tanks rolling through this island. <laughs> it also says that the tanks that Brother Blood have, which have the BB logo on them instead of the Nazi tanks, which we see in a previous panel, are out on a specific mission. Doesn't say what that mission is unless they're looking for that one girl who ended up being current Brother Blood's mom. Did you get what those tanks were supposed to be up to? No, but because the like the previous few panels were like, well, maybe the Nazis were just curious and like drove their tanks up and they're like, oh, we have to drive our tanks out to meet those tanks. Uh, that must be amphibious because we're on an island. Yeah, they were just going to go send them out to say a tank hello, like maybe like tap turrets to high five each other. Or just, no, like a show of force, like, hey, we, we have this shit too. Yeah, maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense how that woman fled to Zandia because it's a fucking island and she sure didn't look damp. There was a lot that definitely didn't add up and didn't jibe with previous stories. Even within this issue, I guess the deal was that that one bad monk, the first bad monk, put a curse on Vlad the Impaler, Brother Blood, that he and all of his offspring would live to be a hundred, and then when they were a hundred, get murdered by their own son. Mm -hmm. That is a weird, very specific, and not particularly damning curse. And it only works if you probably drink or lick somebody else's blood off of a thing. Yeah, and get bit by a snake, maybe? No, that's just the first guy. Oh, okay. I thought maybe his uh, snake blood venom was hereditary, like his love of licking things that have blood on them. No, I think that was just for like the how he got his hat. Oh, <laughs> the story of how he got his hat. Got bit by a snake. Got bit by a snake, so make me a giant snakehead hat. Mm-hmm. So, all the Brother Bloods are jerks, but it is weird that it does set up initially the first Brother Blood was, like, a pretty righteous dude at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, big on Jesus, doesn't like hypocrisy, doesn't like the Crusades invading his land fights valiantly to drive them back, and then corners the guy who was a former priest of his who led the crusaders to Zandia, and is like, you son of a bitch. And the guy's like, wait, here, have Jesus's prayer shawl. And he's like, okay, but now I'm evil. And then he stabs him and licks the blood. It really does seem to be implying that Jesus's prayer shawl makes people evil which is a wild swing. It is. And the other weird thing is it seemed like that first Brother Blood guy, even before he got the prayer shawl, had some mystical connection to the Christian God that imbued him and his followers with a bunch of strength because everybody was getting their asses handed to them by the Crusaders. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh man, I'm filled with this righteous power. 
And then he goes and they kick everybody's ass before the prayer shawl or any of that stuff. See, I think they glossed over a second, more interesting story there, which is like a seven samurai type thing, only with just one samurai, because it seems like the villagers weren't fighting back at all. And there's a couple of pieces of caption work where it at least suggests that he then trained all of the villagers in guerrilla warfare and then they were able to fight back and drive back the crusaders like it had not occurred to them to fight back at any point until he trained them yeah but it's also set up that like before that happens he's like hold on guys i gotta pray for a second figures and he's like ah i've got it you think it just occurred to him to tell them like hey use the pointy end of your farm equipment yeah, you know how you guys are always accidentally chopping your own limbs off with your super sharp scythes and whatnot? What if you chopped some shit off on purpose? And then, hey, here's a little pro tip. Give it a little lick. I think you'll like it. <laughs> that is so gross. It is super gross. So let's just discuss the things that get licked in this issue. <laughs> I don't know why, but the boxing glove, like, freaks me out maybe the most. Me too. I don't know why, but that was the most, like... Unhygienic. <laughs> unhygienic, and also I think that was the only one that was in front of a big crowd. So you kind of imagine, like, he's a college student at this point. A weird, creepy college student, but a college student nonetheless. He's in a boxing match, he wins the boxing match, has the other person's blood on his glove, and then, while everyone is watching, just holds it up to his face and gives it, like, a little cat-like lick. It is so weird, and part of, I think, what freaked me out about it was just imagining the immediate ostracization of that person by the entire crowd afterwards. And yet, he has this huge quasi-religious group following him after that yeah there is a disconnect with the description of this character the modern era brother blood and his depiction because it describes him on the previous page as but life for the son of blood was not so pleasant his quick anger instigated fights his brooding temper forced away the the very women he pursued. He was welcomed by no one. And then it shows him, yeah, succeeding at sports and being the charismatic leader of this huge group of followers called the Youngblood Society when he is at Oxford. Well, that's because he, he went to England, Hub. He left the, the scary Middle East where everybody was mean. Oh, gotcha. I mean, those guys even threw a bird at him. <laughs> Which is maybe one of my favorite. I forgot they threw a bird at him. He's trying to run away, and the one when the guy in the pink turban is like got his hands on his hips, just doing a belly laugh, and the other guy's like releasing the hawk at his face. Oh man, I'm glad I gotta say that Brother Blood doesn't have his own pet bird, because if he did he would definitely lick the blood off of that bird after oh. the bird attacked somebody. And that is a level of creepiness I could not abide. Oh, that poor bird. But yeah, so for things that get licked, we have OG Brother Blood licking his sword after he stabs that guy, which really is an image that comes out of nowhere. We have Brother Blood 
the modern licking his boxing glove after punching that guy. After they throw the bird at him and he's mad, he beats up all of his half-brothers to death, maybe? Oh, yeah! Like, drags his finger across the bloody temple of one of them and puts that in his mouth. Yeah, there we- yeah, there it is. After calling them useless, worthless cretins, uh, I will see you all dead. And then he just, yeah, takes- it's not just a lick, it's like he grabs a pawful, like he's some kind of a terrifying pooh bear with a honey pot of blood. Just- just a smackerel of blood. It is so gross. And there's a dagger. Yeah, and then he licks the dagger. Is that after killing his dad or after killing somebody else? Uh, that's the blood maybe before him. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Hitler buddy blood? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, he licks that blood. And then I guess maybe he doesn't lick the blood after he kills his dad because he naked wrestles his dad to death. No, he throws a stalagmite at him. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't lick that, so no, I think, so it's, the list is actually not that big. It's a sword, a dagger, a boxing glove, and a finger. Yeah. So just a four blood lick in this issue. Yeah. I gotta say, I still think that's a lot. Maybe it's... I'm just old-fashioned. In my opinion, licking the blood off of four enemies is three too many. So like I said... Apparently, the framing device of this story, which is Mother Mayhem inviting the Titans into her back room and just telling them this story, happens between issues 27 and 28 of the New Teen Titans. And I, for the life of me, cannot figure out when it is supposed to happen. Is this after Cyborg set the charges on the church, but before it blew up? Yeah, maybe they were, like, running out of a corridor, and she's like, oh, hey, guys, do you have a second? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. If that is the case, I gotta believe Cyborg is just continually looking at his watch and being like, uh, guys, we really have to go. Well, he is the only one who's, like, got his ankles crossed, he's got his arms crossed, he's scowling, (laughs) and everybody else is like, oh, this is super interesting. He's like, "Mm." I'm getting kind of impatient. Look, we've got, like, a few seconds before we all blow up. Yeah, yeah, lick the sword, lick the dagger. (laughs) Yeah, willing to stipulate, he licked a lot of stuff. Okay, uh, good story. Uh, All right, Mother Mayhem, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. Yep. We kind of glossed over it, but really, really terrible, terrible depiction of the, I don't know, fucking Sultan, I guess, that current Blood's mom was married to as her second husband after leaving the Church of Blood, who is horrifically abusive and talks about his many wives, and there is a great deal of implied sexual violence, including perhaps what killed Blood's mother. There is also a scene in which he is talking about raising the taxes on the rich to 15% and the taxes on the poor to 50% in a scene in which he kills a few different people. But the second guy that he kills, the one who is like, you can't raise taxes that high, there is one panel, which is a close-up of him, in which I momentarily thought, 
papers. <laughs> exactly. Fifty <laughs> percent. <laughs> they fucked up and put little tiny pupil dots on his glasses. So it looks like he has enormous all-white eyeballs with tiny dots in the middle. I think that the inker was the same as the artist here, so maybe during the coloring process or something that got added. It is a mistake that I think is honestly born out of racial caricature. Mm. Because like, it is a very cartoonish moment if those are not glasses that he is wearing if it is just him bugging his eyes out that much and you would never mistake it for that on any other character but where there are so many cartoonish racially stereotyped images of arabic people in this it would not be that out of place to have a character with enormous eyeballs that are bugged out like that that i think that is why that mistake happened but it did create a moment where i was momentarily like Peepers, what are you doing in this racist depiction of the comic book Middle East? I wonder if there's like uh, kind of jokes that pencilers and inkers play on each other from time to time. Or like, I'm just going to leave these in and see if anybody notices. I'm sure there are. Draw these little dots on this guy's glasses and then it gets through publishing. It is really clear that those are supposed to be glasses, though, because in the next panel you do see after he is shot his glasses fall off now maybe i guess it's possible that they're just like novelty glasses that like have giant eyeballs on them like you use for playing poker or something but i kind of don't get that impression i really think that is a honest mistake born out of uh racial caricature yep that or or one of those practical jokes probably the the former not the not the latter Honestly, it could be both. Although I did have, uh, in college, we, as part of like the study abroad thing, we had to do this cookbook. And each of us, each of the students had a recipe in it. And one of the kids went and typed the great under his name because the teacher had left the Word document open. And she didn't notice <laughs> so <laughs> that the final published cookbook had his name, the great. That was pretty funny. That is nice. I'm not sure how it relates to what we were talking about. Oh, just like a joke that you make and somebody doesn't catch it and then ah, it gets published. Gotcha. It, it wasn't a racist uh, <laughs> I was going to say, oh, I am not familiar with that one. Was <laughs> No, I think it's, it's okay to call people the great. It's, yeah, I don't think that's like a uh, Macedonian slur. I, I think not, no. So after that scene... There's a part, and that gets back to that Orientalism thing we were talking about even more, where she's like, okay, we, you have to go to England to get a proper education mm -hmm. to make me proud, because you're obviously not going to get that here, you know, where we invented the zero and all this other great science. But, but that, as part of that, he's like, I'm worried that I know my stepdad's going to kill you, and then I'm going to have to come back to kill him. But anyway, I'll go now. Yeah. And then it happens later. He's like, oh, man, I knew this would happen. It's like, dude, why did, why did you go? His dad, too, being like, well, a baby. Well, he's going to murder me when he gets older. Nothing I can do about that. And sends him away. And then once he's a teenager, it's like, oh, hey, I could just kill him now. Like, that didn't occur to you for that 14 years? 
I guess that's about the time child rearing gets to be challenging. <laughs> Fair enough. You think that was maybe unrelated? <laughs> yeah, it's just like just keeps wanting to play the Xbox. I told him just, just, your screen time's done. He's he's always in the bathroom. <laughs> Some of us are trying to bathe in blood too, buddy. Okay. Wrap it up. Yeah, the naked blood wrestling was pretty dramatic. Yeah, naked blood wrestling your dad is a rite of passage I could definitely do without. Maybe really does drive home that whole monk's curse was a curse after all. Hmm. The followers of blood definitely believe that he's 700 years old and is just one dude, right? Uh, no, they... Well, in this, that's the case, but previously, part of the whole mythos of blood and part of the religion that these people are following is that he is 700 years old Mm -hmm. and keeps getting resurrected. In this, his followers see him and know that he gets murdered all the time and see him get murdered in front of them. Yeah, but I guess if it's his kid, they're like, okay, maybe they... Still the same guy? The one, no, like the ones that are in the cave at the ceremony in this in this storyline are like the insider group, and it's like you know how like religions and cults do that. Like, okay, you guys know like level five shit, and everybody else only knows level three shit. Oh, so like these guys have all the thetans, yeah, exactly, or no thetans, or however it works. And so they get to know that brother blood sometimes stab each other to death with stalactites. Right. Like, it's not all Elrond Sr. This is like Junior. Okay, so this is like the Sea Org. Sure, yeah. The Blood Org. Yeah. No, I, I got you. I read that. Yeah, thing. okay. Yeah, that's probably it. Well, are you ready to move on to the minutia? <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. Uh, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? You know, this was an interesting one because we got... I guess a regular-sized Titans story and then a giant-sized, mostly-not-Titans story. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. The minutia feels a little weird in this one because of that. Agreed. Like, I just want to change the categories up for, like, you know, grossest thing somebody's blood was licked off. <laughs> but, that said, I had, for my president of the drama club, Beast Boy, because on page eight, when he sees that robot pterodactyl, mm-hmm. he just freaks out i mean i get it like it's a surprising sight to see a giant mechanical robot dinosaur yeah but uh it seemed a little over the top even for beast boy i agree i think that was a very dramatic moment i decided for my president of the drama club to go with teenage brother blood just for for licking blood off of shit i think that's a super dramatic move it is just so creepy. He's such a creep. I hate that little fucking creep. He's drawn creepy on purpose. Uh-huh. And for the majority of the story, I get the impression that he's supposed to be the hero of the story. Like, 
I mean, definitely we know he's going to turn bad, but it's like a like an Anakin situation in the prequels type of thing, you know? I guess I got to let my parents get killed. Yep. I don't I don't like this, but okay. Fucking hate sand. Ooh. Neither one of them enjoyed living in a desert climate. Mm. He is a real Anakin Skywalker, and he's also the president of the drama club. Just for licking that fucking boxing glove. Yep, that's fair. Timestamp in this issue. Few to choose from, which ones did you want to talk about? I think probably my favorite was... uh... Marv Wolfman slash Randy Newman talking about he could get a red-eye flight back to New York to catch Willard Scott doing the weather on the Today Show. Yep, that's a pretty specific one. I liked that as well. You also have Beast Boy ending a joke after saying how serious he is by saying Waka Waka, which is a Fozzie Bear reference, which I appreciated. Yep, that was a good one. I had a... Probably this one will resonate with you on page eight, a Columbo reference. I liked that as well. Yeah, Columbo, not a particularly timely reference by the mid 80s, but they may have still been making an occasional Columbo movie at that point. Yeah, one, one more thing. One more thing. Are you a giant <laughs> dinosaur alien from space? Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My, my wife's gonna, she, she's gonna drive me crazy if I don't at least try to deactivate you uh, mechanical robot dinosaurs. That's, that's pretty good, Peter Falk. It isn't, but thank you. Um, <laughs> I was just being nice. I know. I would say that the Dinobots, or possibly Zoids themselves, are a bit of a timestamp. Mm-hmm. That's what I was gonna say. Zoids. I feel like there were a bunch others, but... Like I said, it's a 64-page comic book in which the pages aren't numbered, so taking notes on it was a little bit tricky for me. Those were the ones that I had. Yeah. You mentioned Skateris earlier, McDonald's. That, I guess that's earlier. That's Warlord was like mid-late 70s, maybe. But I think the first appearance of the Warlord and Skateris was in an issue of First Issue Special. I think it was number eight. So that would put it around 75. But Warlord was a currently running comic book at that time. So, yeah, sure. And like like I said, I think the opening of International McDonald's seems like it was a big thing in the mid-80s. Yep. That's, a, that's plenty to choose from. Yeah. Corey, let's take this party to the Bo-Zone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo do you want to talk about? Yeah, this one was pretty easy for me. And this is, it's not something that was said out loud, but that, well, Donna maybe kind of said it under her breath, or at least thought it to herself, in regards to her stepdaughter, Jenny. Oh. That she was a giant weasel. (laughs) Zing. Pretty good. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, I get it, like, conniving, like, stretching out the bedtime story, like, she was sneaky about it, but I just, in my mind's eye, saw literally a giant weasel and was like, ugh. Well, also, maybe if she was, then Jennifer could join the multi-publisher team of muscolid superheroes, along with Wolverine and the Badger and the Ferret. And Jennifer. Yep. 
I had also something that Donna said when she is describing Dr. Light. She says, I'm not allowed to tell you her real name, but she's from Japan and calls herself Dr. Light. Jennifer starts to cut her off and say, like, you mean like, and Donna says, no, this Dr. Light is in no relation to the original. For one thing, she's totally competent. Ouch. That that is the descriptor that gets applied to Dr. Light before evil is just completely incompetent. That's putting too much emphasis on ability and not enough on not being evil. I agree. Also, we mentioned it earlier, but after Teenage Brother Blood beats up the Arabic teens who threw a bird at him, he says, Useless, worthless, cretins. I will see you all dead. Zing! Now I'm gonna lick this brain blood off you. Ugh. Ugh. With the amount of blood that he is licking off his hand after punching him in the head, it seems like he might be seeing them dead right then. It does. This is a tricky category for me, because like you said, it almost seems like this issue should have a different set of categories, but I didn't want to think them up, so it doesn't. Who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans? Yeah, I'll start with Aqualad, and um, for me it was it was a toss-up between Cyborg and Starfire, mm. and I wound up going with Starfire because after recovering from falling out of the middle of the sky after fighting the robot pterodactyl, she immediately pieces together what went wrong with that scenario. And then, even though she's fairly strong enough to stand up, attempts to uh, to rescue everybody else by lifting that heavy thing off of where everybody's trapped, and um, unable to do it herself, uh, with good humor, recruits Donna to, to do so, and um, kind of moves the story forward and saves everybody. I agree. I think that was a good move on her part. I also did have Cyborg in contention. Just the fact that he and Starfire were the two that were called upon to fight all of the dinosaur robots that the whole team couldn't defeat one of together, that the two of them were left to fight all three of those, and maybe not one, but at least didn't die, I thought was pretty impressive for both of them. And he had some nice moments. I believe initially he rescued Starfire, and then they kind of rescued each other. I thought that was pretty nice. I ultimately decided to go with Donna, just because I don't think this story happened. So really, she was the only one who did anything in telling the story of what happened. So I think she kind of did the best there. Told a pretty compelling bedtime story to a nine-year-old that she was, I think, making up off the top of her head, and also pranked Terry Long into getting that paper published about Easter Island. So, zing. Well, she may get major points for the Easter Island zinger, which I I love that. But actually, for almost those exact same reasons, I had Donna as my beast boy. Because she told a bedtime story to a nine-year-old that involved beast boy ogling Starfire saying, yeah, the site's not half bad from my viewpoint either. Beautiful, well-built, and sexy. Yeah, I love it. 
Yeah, and then also normalizing that behavior by making up Starfire's response, basically being, oh, you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a good call. For my worst Teen Titan, I had more to choose from. Within the context of the story, I, of course, had Beast Boy as an option. He was a real fucking turd. And initially, I had, it's Beast Boy, of course. But the more I started thinking about it, a couple of other options came to mind. One was Nightwing for abandoning Cyborg and Starfire and saying, all six of us need to go investigate this beacon coming from Easter Island where nobody's in immediate danger. You guys stay here and deal with the threat that is going to destroy at least three cities almost immediately. That is some bad leadership and a bad delegation of duties. I know it worked out okay, but I think it would have worked out the same if they had sent one person to Easter Island to investigate that. Mm. The other option that I had is maybe a bit of a stretch, but this character is the protagonist of a story and is at time I think viewed as a hero and is a teenager... Is Teenage Brother Blood eligible in this one specific instance? What? If so, for all of that weird-ass blood-licking, I think he's the worst Teen Titan. I know he's not generally depicted as a hero, but he is fighting a villain. He is attempting to avenge his wronged mother. And he is very much the protagonist of that story, if not the hero. I don't know. I think he might technically qualify as a teen titan and if so he's definitely the worst oh man that is a hell of a stretch but i don't feel like arguing so good choice (laughs) i'll take it Corey, what was your favorite panel yeah as you said the art in this was was really great pretty much everywhere Yeah, I don't think we talked very much about the other artist, if it even came up at all, but the artist for the Brother Blood story, he did both the pencils and inks, and it's a guy named Jim Bikey, who is from uh, northern Scotland, the Orkney Isles. And uh, yeah, he does a great job. He worked in British comic books a fair amount and worked with Alan Moore some. And he did a few things for DC, but not really a ton. But yeah, he does a great job in this. Yeah, absolutely. I was keeping my search a little more like Teen Titans specific focused. So I I didn't really go too deep into the Brother Blood origin story in terms of the, the art that I liked. But I will say that that may be the second page of that story. That's the kind of The Crusader splash page, that's the double-page spread of Crusaders that's done in almost a medieval style of, yeah, Crusaders stampeding through a town like the bad guys in Blazing Saddles and just pillaging and killing. Yeah, it is so impressive, and it just immediately, like, jars you into this medieval badness that's that's unfolding, and it was really kind of jarring and shocking after reading this kind of goofy story narrated by wonder girl so i i appreciated the tone setting that that accomplished yeah i think it was remarkable i think that probably is my favorite panel in either comic book but it is it's just so very good there's so much going on i it's amazing to me that this is a one person did 
all the art for the whole story. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the first story, I always appreciate the detailed kind of technology shown in the background. It reminded me of Perez, and it's the scene where a cyborg's sitting at the supercomputer on page six at the outset when they're trying to figure out what's going on. That one was drawn really nicely. Yeah. For a workstation, the chair placement doesn't make a ton of sense for me. Cyborg's a pretty tall guy, and he has to lean way forward to work the computer, and it looks like the chair is welded to the floor pretty far away from the workstation. So, I don't know, I can't have that be my favorite just because uh, that is just not an ergonomic work situation. Yeah, I, I don't know. There may be more going on there. I suspect that the chair is indeed movable. I like that it has a really cool T for Titans logo in it. I suspect maybe he's leaning forward because he's uncomfortable with Donna's cleavage almost bumping the back of his head if he were to be sitting in the chair. That is a possibility. Anyway, the technological detail of all the widgets and seeing those guys in their workplace doing their thing was nice. And then I think maybe just as a backup, Wolfman slash Randy Newman getting his house crushed Hmm. was comical. It's pretty cool. It looks like he's wearing a lab coat over his Hawaiian shirt. I think that's supposed to be just like maybe a David Byrne type jacket, but uh, it it is weird. Yeah, maybe Don Johnson type. Don Johnson would not wear a blazer over a Hawaiian shirt. Not over a Hawaiian shirt, but just like a maybe it's like a white linen blazer. Yeah. Maybe it was bought because he thought it would make him look like Don Johnson, but then he put it on over a Hawaiian shirt because he's a fucking goober. Which he tucked in to his jeans also. Jesus Christ. Who does that? Marv Wolfman, that's who. (laughs) You know what? I'm glad a dinosaur stepped on his house. Just for his, his crimes against Hawaiian shirt fashion? No, because Zandia is an island. Oh. What was your favorite panel? Oh, you said the already, the Crusades. Yeah, I think it's the Crusades one, although I did also like the first reveal of the rampaging Tyrannosaurus. I'm not sure what page it's on, but it's part of the flashback sequence that wasn't recognized as a flashback sequence. Mm. But yeah, just rampaging robot Tyrannosaurus saying, Rah! in this font that is the epitome of mid to late 80s. It's like this electric pulsating mauve. Oh, yeah. Very 80s. Yeah. It's just a heck of a font. It's a heck of a picture of an angry robot dinosaur. I like it a lot. It looks like one of the bad guys from early Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like those little like... Oh, the Mausers? Chicken robots, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you want to focus on? Well, I think we've already beat this one into the ground, but who wears a white linen blazer over a (laughs) flowery shirt that you've tucked into your jeans? Yeah, it's a bad look, Wolfman. I agree. There is also, as we talked about, the disparity of outfits amongst the archaeologist scientists between Ben and Julie, and nameless black character. Yep. Who, he doesn't get a shirt. Or nipples. No. Nipples are for closers. (laughs) 
I don't know that guy. Maybe he's a closer. I know that he's not treated as much of a character. He's a background character in like four different scenes. So he may be somebody whose name we're supposed to know. But yeah, he sure doesn't get a shirt. And yeah, white male character has a full jumpsuit. White female character, skimpy tank top, short shorts, and a hard hat. And a jackhammer. Yeah. I don't know. It's an array of looks I think worth commenting on. Other than that, I mean, we definitely have the prayer shawl as peekaboo crotch curtains. That's definitely a thing that happens in this issue. Mm -hmm. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1986, and the month of our Lord, August, what's somebody probably up to we already know what aqualad's up to although i don't remember what it is i think it might have to do with jerry garcia coming out of a coma if memory serves which sometimes it does but we already have done a what's aqualad probably up to for august of 1986 so what's uh what's a different character probably up to in that month yeah i, I was uh turned to the financial pages for this segment and came across Mr. Jupiter. Oh, what's the uh, world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man doing in August of 1986? He's uh, trying to get even richer and look more trustworthy doing it. So what he realized is that you've been a Pike Place market in Seattle. We've been there together, I think, probably. Yeah. So he wants to invest there. He went on a visit for some other business venture that he was on. And it's like, man, this place is mobbed with tourism hmm. all the time. I should just basically buy it and uh, jack up the rents that everybody in the stalls are paying. And, you know, if they don't like it, somebody else will move in. That son of a bitch. So that's what he decides to do because he just sees it as this, like, you know, captive audience of uh, tourist dollars. But he's like, well, shit, if I do that, I'm going to look bad and people you know maybe you'll think bad things about my investment my shell corporation or whatever so i also have to do something to appear generous or charitable and so maybe at the same time as i make this investment and jack up these rents i will give money to charity people like that right yeah but i don't want to give any of my own money away <laughs> so i know i am gonna leverage all those tourist dollars also for charity as well as for buying scones and chocolate pasta and flying fishes so he commissioned local sculptor georgia gerber to build a sculpture of a giant piggy bank who is named rachel the pig hmm. which is that large bronze pig near pike place so yeah that's what he does and uh the sculpture is actually modeled after the uh, the sculptor's neighbor's pet pig, who was a, a prize-winning pig at the uh, 1985 Island Country Fair. Ooh! So this bronze statue of basically it's a giant pig with a little piggy bank thing in the top, weighs in about 550 pounds, which incidentally 200 pounds less than the actual pig was who won that prize. And uh, it collects around 10,000 US dollars in, uh, in coins from tourism a year and has raised over $200,000 for charity since its installation in early April 1986. Huh. Well, good for him, I guess. 
I mean, Mr. Jupiter probably has that much money in the fucking cushions of his couch, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, this is other people's money that he basically gets to take credit for. Ah, that's always the sweetest to donate. Well, that's what Mr. Jupiter was probably up to. Oink. Indeed. But what was Speedy probably up to? Mm. (laughs) Stealing coins out of (laughs) Rachel the Pig. No, although you do raise a good point, which is that Speedy is a real dipshit. And as such, he's a big Yankees fan. (laughs) Specifically, he's a big fan of Billy Martin, the many times manager of the New York Yankees, who has come up in these a few times before. See, Billy Martin was having his uniform number, number one, retired by the New York Yankees. So, Speedy, huge fan of Billy Martin, can't get enough of the guy. I mean, he likes his baseball managing, but he loves his drunk driving. Mm. He decided to swing by Yankee Stadium and pay homage to his hero. I mean, he was a big fan specifically of the many times Billy Martin had attacked fans or random businessmen, and he thought that it was about time that somebody gave him the honor he felt he deserved. So he headed up, he attended the uniform retirement ceremony, and afterwards had more than a few drinks with Billy Martin. And Billy Martin was like, yeah, this was nice and all. Being honored is great, but what I really like is punishing my enemies. And Speedy's like, I'll drink to that and anything else. (laughs) And so they had a real bonding session, and Billy Martin mentioned that, I mean, really hurt my feelings. A couple of years ago, I had a player named uh, Don Baylor, and when I got fired as manager, before being rehired again as manager a year later, We had a really good season that year, right before I got fired. And in the press, he said, a lot of people say that we won 90 games with Billy. We won 90 games despite Billy. And that really hurt my feelings. So I'd really like to see that guy get his comeuppance. And Speedy was like, you know what? I'm way ahead of you. I've already been going to a lot of Red Sox games which Don Baylor was currently playing for the Red Sox. And uh, I've been firing some translucent magnet arrows around Hmm. the field, and they've led to him being beamed by baseballs 24 times already this year. He just keeps getting pelted with those things. Yeah, he gets on base, but he also gets hit with a baseball, which sucks. And Billy's like, oh, that's great. Uh, What's the record for getting hit by a ball during a game? And Speedy's like, that's the thing. It's 25. One more, and he will have been pelted with more baseballs than anyone else during the course of a season. And Billy Martin said, wow, I'd sure like to be there when he gets that that final one. So two days later, Speedy and Billy Martin, both wearing disguises, attended a Boston Red Sox game at which Don Baylor due to some translucent magnet arrows fired by Speedy, got hit with a baseball for the 25th time that year. And that is what Speedy was probably up to in August of 1986. Mm, Speedy. 
And after the baseball hit Don Baylor, Speedy talked to some of his contacts, and he had the ball brought over to him and Billy as a trophy. And together, they licked the blood off of it. Ooh. I know! Gross. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us for this extra long, extra apocalyptic episode of Tighten Up the Defense. My pleasure. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or at our P.O. Box, which is Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Another way that you can get into touch with us is you can find us on social media if you're of a mind to do that. If not, I understand. Social media is not a great place in a lot of ways right now. So if you want to stay off it, that's fine too. If you do want to seek us out there, we're up in all the places where you might find us. So you can look there. Just type in T-I-T-A-N, up the defense, into your web browser and see what the fisherman brings in that day. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. And that's in your heart. Because we'll be there. Corey, what are we doing in people's hearts? Um, seeking shelter? Yeah, maybe having a couple of drinks. Keeping it tidy. We'll clean up after ourselves. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast that I co-host with Lisa, What the Duck, podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there's also a whole bunch of extra video content that I've been making where I review classic comic books. Uh, I did a run fairly recently where I talked about a bunch of PSA comics, been talking about some goofy Silver Age stuff, and just, you know, saying hi. If you want access to all that extra content, it's available exclusively to donors. So if you kick us down some money, you can check it out there. Um, If you can't, I also totally understand. Mostly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. It really does make a huge difference to me personally, and I appreciate it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, why not leave us a review in places where reviews can be left? Any of them. Or, heck, tell a friend, an enemy, a loved one, someone who you worship. (laughs) anybody who's not licking blood off a boxing glove i think would appreciate a fine show like tighten up the defense and if they are licking blood off a boxing glove just get out of there man just turn around and run yeah probably don't don't engage yeah like if while you're running away you want to throw a bird at them i'm not gonna argue with you but it's probably best to just get out of there in general, don't throw birds at people. Why? Well, you don't know how it's going to work out. Exactly. So, thanks for listening. <laughs> In summation... Oink! Okay. Where are you getting that from, Corey? You've said that a few times now. From uh, the Rebecca, the, the pig. I thought you said her name was Rachel. Rachel, the pig. Okay, just because you talked about a pig, you're going to yell oink? Yep.
Okay, just checking. Uh, it's pretty. Yeah. It's a cute pig. No, I I gotcha. Yeah, pig, sure. That's that's cool. Yep. All right. Uh, boink. One of the big ones is kind of a meta one, and that and that. Blah, 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 blah. How's that Manhattan? Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm moving on to the Neon Daydream. Is that a type of beer, or are you just keeping me apprised of your status right now? <laughs> oh, man. I wish. No, it's a type of beer. <laughs>